0: Before we start the episode, I want to ask you to take some time to fill out the Decoder Audience Survey. We want to hear what you think of the show, our guests, and any other feedback you want to share. It'll only take a few minutes, and you'll be helping to inform future episodes to make our show even better. You can find the survey in the show notes or at theverge.com survey. Thanks. Support
1: for this episode comes from The Current Report. From data privacy to the future of TV, retail media, and beyond, the world of digital marketing is constantly in flux, so how can you keep up? Well, The Current Report is there for you. Each week, marketing leaders on the cutting edge give you the latest insight. If it's creating a buzz, they'll be talking about it. Subscribe to The Current Report wherever you get your podcasts. Support for Decoder comes from Splunk. You need to keep operations humming around the clock, but potential disruptions are everywhere. With Splunk, you can get more control with unified security and observability so you can sidestep those disruptions. Splunk helps you predict problems and fix and find issues fast so you can reduce risk and ditch downtime. Some of the world's largest enterprises already rely on Splunk's unified security and observability platform to become more efficient, resilient, and innovative. It's time to react quickly, evolve faster, and be ready for anything. Stay ahead of disruptions. Learn more at splunk.com
0: slash resilience. Hello, and welcome to Decoder. I'm Nilay Patel, Editor-in-Chief of The Verge, and Decoder is my new podcast about big ideas and other problems. This is our second week in a row with a very impressive 20-something CEO on Decoder, which is a trend that I love, even though it's making me feel very old. Today, I'm talking to Austin Russell, the 25-year-old founder and CEO of Luminar a startup in Silicon Valley that makes LiDAR sensors for self-driving cars. Luminar recently went public, making Austin today's youngest self-made billionaire. And when it comes to self-driving cars, youth is definitely an advantage. Austin told me we're still years, if not decades, away from fully self-driving cars with no steering wheel. And there's still a lot of work to be done to make them safe, effective, and ubiquitous. That work is racing ahead. Luminar has deals with Volvo, Audi, Toyota, and others, but building a complete self-driving car is still a long-term project. One of the things Austin kept bringing up in this conversation were the enormous differences between making concept vehicles, fleet vehicles like autonomous taxis built for cities, and cars that will actually be sold to consumers worldwide, which is his goal. We also talked about Tesla and the differences between the technology is building and what Tesla is already shipping, and what it's like to compete with Elon Musk. Some quick notes before we start. You've already heard me talk about LiDAR a lot. The word is a combination of light and radar. It's a technology that uses a laser to measure the distance of objects and map a space in three dimensions. LiDAR is already used on self-driving cars. It's mostly been used for short distance mapping, but Luminar claims to have a functioning LiDAR sensor that works at 250 meters, which is a breakthrough. The other phrase you're gonna hear a lot is OEM, which stands for original equipment manufacturer. You're gonna hear us talk about OEMs when Austin is talking about deploying Luminar's technology. In this case, the OEMs are the car companies that are buying Luminar's sensors and putting them into their vehicles. Okay. Austin Russell, the founder and CEO of Luminar. Here we go. Austin Russell, you're the founder and CEO of Luminar. Welcome to the show. Thank you. I'm very excited to talk to you. You are, uh, as far as the last thing I read, the the youngest self-made billionaire in America. Your company just <laughs> went public in a SPAC. How old are you?
2: I am 25 currently, and um, come Pi Day, 26.
0: Oh, you're, you were born on Pi Day?
2: <laughs> yeah, exactly. March 14th. It's
0: just a lot, of, a lot of things coming together for you there. That's great. Uh, an auspicious thing. <laughs> um, so uh, Luminar is uh, it's a company that makes LiDAR sensors. You have a number of deals to supply LiDAR sensors to major automakers. I want to talk all about that. W- one thing that I always... Uh, get frustrated by in in origin stories is no one ever really talks about act two, right? There's in 2012, you were at Stanford. You had this idea to to do LiDAR sensors, something happened. Now you're a public company with hundreds of employees and and you're a billionaire. Right. And like, I'm, I want to talk about act two for a little bit, just that middle part of going from, I've got a great idea to this company is actually up and running and functional. So, just give me a sense at the beginning. You were a student at Stanford. You got a Teal Fellowship from Peter Teal. What was the next step? What did you sit down and build a lidar sensor? Did you have the components for it? Where you're like, I got to make a laser. <laughs> what was the next step?
2: You know, I think when it when it comes down to it, there wasn't any kind of miracle step, uh, so to say, involved in that of rather these were already somewhat uh, ongoing projects, even at the time when when I went into Stanford, when I got the Teal Fellowship, everything was already somewhat in motion. It, it, I mean, it all starts with that innate passion and desire to be able to want to build, to create, to innovate and invent. And uh, in my case, you know, just had a specific interest around, you know, optics, photonics and, and other types of systems that can end up making a huge difference in these kinds of new products and saw the application opportunity for autonomous vehicles. So really just went all in on that. And, uh, you know, it's it's one of those things that if you knock it out of the park, it really is a, a trillion-dollar industry opportunity with, not to mention the humanitarian aspect of, you know, what 1.3 million lives lost on the road every year to be able to have an opportunity to impact that and, you know, make a difference. And, you know, it, it maybe seems like a crazy long shot, you know, at the time for, um, for, for that to, to happen and materialize. But at the same time, I think, you know, you just have extreme focus around what you want to do and continue to solve for it, build for it, learn from all the folks around you and, uh, just continue to deliver.
0: This is the thing you're, you're, this is the act two that I, you got the fellowship, you get the check. What'd you do the next day?
2: <laughs> What'd it do the next day? Um, you know, I, I, it's like it's like the same thing that, you know, that, that it was otherwise <laughs> doing. Like, you know, I don't know how much it it, it fundamentally changes other than accelerate the exact same thing they are doing. And you just keep accelerating and accelerating and accelerating. And you have this compounding exponential effect that you can grow and snowball into something much bigger. And that's really what happens. And and by the way, for things like the Teal Fellowship, I mean, don't get me wrong. The 100K check is is great, but. There's multiple ways you can generate 100K you know, income to be able to start a business, but the, the real value is the network. How do you learn from the most successful entrepreneurs you know, on the, on the planet to be able to build this kind of business and scale this kind of business? And it takes a lot more than a great technology and concept to build a great business. And, and that's what's required if you want to actually have your tech see the light of day.
0: So it was just you at the beginning. You had this interest in optics and photonics. You saw the market opportunity for LiDAR, particularly in self-driving cars. At the time, 2012-ish, those systems are really big. I think Luminars' kind of advancement is you've, you've made them smaller, easier to manufacture, right? You, you've made them more of a, a useful device. How would you go from I've got this idea to uh, – like? here's a simple question. Who was the first person you hired?
2: Ooh, um couple of key folks that, that we had. Uh, one of them that, uh, that we worked with originally from a consulting perspective and then ultimately brought on as a co-founder into this was a guy named Jason Eichenholz, uh, who's our CTO and uh, kind of responsible for a lot of now forward-looking R&D programs and projects that we have going on from a LIDAR standpoint. He was actually helped establish the Orlando, Florida office that we have, you know, outside of, you know, the Silicon Valley presence that we had and that was where uh we really started to scale up the hardware team you know out there and be able to build out the capability turned out highest concentration of these type of lidar engineers out of anywhere in the world is in orlando florida uh so that's where you know you go where the people are it's a space coast defense industry cape canaveral you know and all, all that that really brought in a lot of the talent from and then um Actually, another another interesting one. I, I did end up hiring my uncle, uh, who was a uh, <laughs> uh, an, an electrical engineer, and you know, someone that um, had, had admired. I didn't know him super well previously, but you know, my parents keenly pointed out, say, hey, you know, your uncle does that electrical engineering thing, you know, and uh, I was like, uh, you know, he's he's certainly good at rapid prototyping, and definitely helped out early on as well.
0: So, just walking through, you've got your early prototypes, a small team of people. You think it can be productized. How'd you go from, from that to you've got a manufacturing operation, at scale that you know can obviously support the size of public company or now?
2: It definitely is a shift going from the core technology development, which you know, we did for the first handful of years, to being able to have a scalable operation that can build automotive grade product, you know, into series production. And that th- the most important thing, that's always been our goal and focus. The reality is, is that even effectively all the autonomous vehicle companies today uh, that, that are built, building products—it's really much more meant for R and D than it is for something that's ever actually going to make its way into a production vehicle. And that's a key distinction here of where you have to follow automotive process and, and the work around how you can build these sensing systems up. And. That's where, for us, we kind of leverage the core expertise around how you can successfully assemble these and doing the process engineering and the manufacturing engineering and everything to be able to get to a stage where we can have a formula for not just the technology itself, but how to be able to build the technology and build it at scale. And uh, that was where we also built out that capability in Orlando. You know, we have about a hundred thousand square feet, you know, worth of space that you know we've been driving that forward with in our facility and. That's where the manufacturing process that we have that's developed, ultimately, we will transfer and are transferring to the relevant contract manufacturers to be able to do the final assembly for series production. So that way, you know, we're not, we're not taking on thousands upon thousands of employees ourselves as, you know, we scale up there, too. We get to leverage outside resources for the more uh, commodity aspect of assembly of the devices itself. but whereas the formula, the automation, how you build it successfully, that's important to what we've had to do to keep in-house. So it's kind of a hybrid model. And that's that's something that just takes a lot of work, a lot of expertise with the right people to build it up. And that's always been core to the philosophy, by the way, is you know, make sure you get the right people on board that have huge domain expertise in the key areas that you really need it in. And you know, so it was easier said than done, but at the same time if you have the right people there and can scale that like we did in this case, it makes all the difference.
0: How much time do you spend with your engineering team doing engineering stuff versus with the business and commercial side of the company?
2: It's still quite a decent amount. Obviously, in the beginning, it was all that, 100%, you know, just diving deep with the team. As we scale up, it's still absolutely critical to not just keep a pulse on Product and product development, but still to be able to shape that with the same vision that you have, and make sure that stays on track. Make sure that it can use to drive forward with all the new inputs that you have, and continuously shape the future of how you see that playing out. That's something that absolutely still hands on, and I don't think that'll ever change. But there's no question that there's a lot of balls to juggle. There's a lot of stuff that has to happen, but they're all kind of synergistic, right? You know, you 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 can't do engineering in a vacuum, or Product management in a vacuum or commercial work in a vacuum here. They all have to tie closely together. And this is where it's critical to have the frame of mind that combines all the different areas of the business and all the different aspects of a product and everything that comes into play and having the technical understanding of that as well, which is not always a given, but in order to be able to succeed and in, in, in scale.
0: As you've been growing at the company, one of the tropes of early internet company founders is that they hired grownups. Mark Zuckerberg hired Sheryl Sandberg. Larry Page and Sergey Brin hired Eric Schmidt. It, it's just a cliche. Have you put yourself in that mode? Have you thought, I need to hire some grownups that are going to help me go public? I need to hire some grownups that are going to help me operate a large company? Or is that have you been more targeted?
2: It's a great question uh, for that. And The key thing here is that it's something that we've been doing. It's something that I've been doing. To be frank, you know, this this whole time throughout our journey, as it relates to uh, step by step through through all this, I don't think there's any single person that you know necessarily hired to like take the reins of you know the grown up doing X, Y, or Z. Rather, build the rock star team of all the respective leaders in their field and build a cross functional org structure where you have a clear set responsibilities for each one of these folks. It's really my job to synthesize all of that information and be able to make corresponding business and technical decisions based on that path and rely on the team from an execution perspective to be able to see that vision through. So it's a little bit of a different setup than maybe you, you, would, you would have with some of those folks, but at the same time, not uncommon at all. You know, you take a look at, you mentioned... You know, Bezos here just, uh, you know, just just finally handed that off, uh, which which is great to be able to see, but had a similar type of cross-functional org structure, you know, for a huge period of time throughout their their Amazon's growth trajectory and curve, among many other companies that um, really set that up. So you got to get the right insight into the right folks in terms of how to set this stuff up. The hard part about this business, though, this isn't like your average Internet company here, you know, where there have been people that have built internet related companies and social media related work and, and and had executed on paths and visions for those different types of businesses. For this, this really is something that from a technological perspective as well as business perspective, it's never been done. You know, I mean, even just carving out the fundamentals of the business model. I mean, so when you when you take a look at like, where do all of Google's and Facebook's revenue come from? Ads, you know, I mean, really, that's what like you take a look at all these like fancy, crazy technology developments and everything and like, okay, what's the business model? Well, it's ads, you know. This is a completely different level of complexity that requires a different level of cross-functional understanding all the way from the fundamental aspects of how the technology works all the way up through the stack. And why it makes it a little bit a little bit different and very important for leadership and whoever is leading the company to be able to have that full stack understanding and be able to drive the business forward and i do think that's why you know there there have been some great celebrated leaders you know within the overall autonomous vehicle space sometimes just purely based on that basic understanding rather than sometimes even any execution at all but it's just so valuable in this space that you know to be able to have that understanding is it drives forward a lot of the different ideas in the industry but that, that that's what i'd say is the case for me um i'm continuing to bring on other great team members expanding You know the overall, you know, exec and leadership team. um, You know, and we have it, but it's uh, it's been a very effective structure for how we're executing.
0: One question I ask every CEO who who comes on the show is, "What's your decision making framework?" And I think that question is particularly interesting with you because you you started the company when you were very young. You've obviously scaled to this point. I imagine you've learned a lot of lessons along the way, particularly as you've, you've almost certainly hired people who are. Older and have more experience than you. How has your decision making framework evolved?
2: I would say just over time, as you build in the scale of business, you ha- kind of have to go from being comfortable with decisions with nearly 100% of the information to being comfortable with decisions with effectively what evolves to a smaller and smaller fraction of that, you know, for given things. And, you know, you have to have greater levels of delegation, you have to have greater levels of. Talent and quality of talent, you know, as, as you build it up and you have to continuously just keep raising the bar in terms of what, what you're going to be doing. And I would say from a decision-making framework standpoint, that goes at the same time in a parallel thread beyond just increased delegation, more shifted towards going from technology-driven decisions by just trying to do whatever you can to create the best product. It's like, okay, well, what do you do? You have the best product. How do you make sure it sees Widespread adoption in the industry and and that's where it becomes focused around Being able to successfully enable that over the long run and being able to establish strategic Initiatives and plans to be able to drive that forward to realization. So you have to apply always a you know business Financial mindset to all of these things, you know it to make it work because if you miss even part of one of the pieces of the puzzle you effectively end up with zero. It's like a binary equation here. You have to get everything almost perfectly right. That's why this is just so impossibly hard. Going from kind of the R&D stage to actually realizing this through into a real product, a business case, and everything around it is a huge challenge. So that's what you have to keep your eye on.
0: So give me an example, right? You're saying you've got a – you're shifting from – building the product, building the prototype, to strategic decisions to make sure you can get to market. Give me an example of a trade-off you've made along the way. Whew. Um,
2: well, I mean, I mean, the, the ultimate goal of, ba- of the balancing act is to try and minimize one-to-one trade-offs and to be able to scale the business side as much as you can scale the technology side in parallel. But nevertheless, I would say, like, for example, one, one, of, the, one of the trade-offs that we had... I mean, we have no shortage of ambition in terms of what we're trying to solve for and what we knew we could build and make a difference on beyond just the LiDAR sensing system. And I think we probably – there was probably some desire to accelerate our software roadmap beyond our hardware roadmap even faster than we ultimately did, actually much faster. But at the same time, you have to be careful about stacking – too many parallel programs together and too much parallel risk and taking it step by step and as exciting as it can be and like something that you know you can solve for ultimately that was uh that was a trade-off that you know we had to say okay remain focused solve the lidar problem see it through yes we'll we'll continue to build up the software stack in parallel for ultimately a more turnkey solution to the autonomous vehicle problem but take it step by step and 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 that's effective what we did and you know it was it was a decently long journey right you know as a eight eight years with this so i think that's where the last few years though you know we spent more time really ramping up the commercial side ramping up the the software side uh as as well what one other interesting trade-off that we that we made from take it from a totally different angle from a um talk about like a marketing perspective you know a lot of times being in stealth mode for some period of time is kind of like is 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 really cool these days, but at this point, back back when we first founded the company, it, it a lot of times you know you you would you would have people that are you know announcing every phase, and I think it's still usually the case now every phase of their journey. Oftentimes, before you actually have anything to show for it, and uh, at some stage, it, it kind of goes back to a core philosophy versus like show not tell, because it's really easy to have a lot of claims. And by the way there is no shortage of claims in the overall autonomous vehicle space. And it's part because it's easy to say things because you don't actually always show it or have to show it or have people, people have ways to easily evaluate if it's actually like real or not. Um, You know, I mean, it's some of the reason why you've seen some of the recent activity from companies that maybe couldn't even raise private capital now (laughs) getting to a stage of where, you know, it's like trying to enter the public markets. But nevertheless, for, for us, you know, it was always heads down focus on delivering don't let any noise affect you don't try and give any any people a reason for a head start here either you know it, it it oftentimes doesn't actually benefit you i mean you're not you're not at least initially consumer or even OEM awareness is less relevant because you have to actually finish the product first you want the first impression to be really good and that's basically what we spent the first 5 years doing deep down in the stealth mode building out the core product and technology, and uh, getting to a stage where, you know, we could actually launch the company and scale this up. And, and that's, um, that's really what we did starting in 2017, you know, five years in, after we had developed the laser, the receiver, the scanning mechanism, the processing electronics, all of our own chips that we had in, our, in the system, and uh, it came together, it all worked. So, you know, <laughs> almost somewhat uh, miraculously, somewhat... <laughs> unexpectedly, but uh, you know, at, at the same time. So that's where I think we were able to capture the attention of, of some of the world's largest automakers in terms of showing the art of what is possible. We had a system of that had specifications. People thought there was no way this was even doable from a physics perspective, much less something that could be economically produced. So that was kind of the start of where we gained a lot of interest from beyond just the technology, but from a commercial angle as well, and, and uh, a key catalyst for... Scaling this up.
0: So I want to dive on that on that first trade off you mentioned, which is going too far too fast. You said you kind of held yourself back from overthinking building the turnkey autonomous driving system, where I'm I'm Patel Automakers, which is a longstanding dream of mine. There you go. Uh, to be a singular car maker. And I'm like, man, I really want this car to drive itself. I'm gonna put out bids to Luminar, to Velodyne, to Siemens for a self driving car stack. I'm going to buy it. I'm going to integrate it into my car, and off, I'm off and running, and I didn't actually do any of that work myself. You want to be that kind of player in the end.
2: Yeah, yeah, absolutely. You know, we, we want to be a turnkey solution, you know, for this. And to some extent, have already started evolving into that, you know, for, for these different OEMs. And really the reason why is, is to be able to build an autonomous vehicle. The LiDAR is just one part of that holistic solution. Now, it is a key bottleneck that's been preventing the deployment of, in large part, this industry just by way of having something that meets the performance requirements, that meets the economic requirements that can actually be scalable here. But at the same time, the LiDAR itself doesn't drive your car. You need the software to go along with it, as well as some of the rest of the ecosystem there to be able to push forward with that. And that, Now there's some argument that some would say of like, okay, well, what on earth, why are you guys screwing around with software? There's like, you know, yeah, okay, you carved out you know, your value proposition in, in, in hardware, you ha- but you have like folks like Waymo and Cruise and all these like multi-billion dollar software development companies that are taking that on. And here's the key distinction, though. If that was applicable to all the same things that we were doing and all the same OEMs we're working with, yeah, we, 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 wouldn't, we wouldn't be in that game. But the, the key distinction here is that, you know, it's no, seeing the difference of, for example, it was very clear that everyone, I mean, virtually every company in the autonomous vehicle space, it Has been focused on robo taxis specifically, and yeah, all the all the big guys there, and uh, that's their primary application. That's what they're developing the software for. But it's actually very different developing the software for highly complex urban robo taxi scenarios and building R and D cars for that because that's that's the most advanced stage that they're at today. You know, with like hundred thousand dollar roof racks full of sensors and stuff, versus building something for a production vehicle in a more constrained application, you know, something that could be deployed in the relative near term with like auto grade quality code, you know, that you can put your life at hands of. So that's a It's a a different trajectory. And that's why we really focused around developing this full stack solution for OEMs, for the automakers themselves, as opposed to us trying to like do some rogue deployment with you know, a robo taxi company or like a ride sharing company of like building our own network of vehicles. I mean, don't get me wrong. That's going to that's going to be a great route. It's going to be huge value at the end of the day that's created based on that, you know, and based on ride sharing. But uh, we don't see that feasibly happening even with our I mean, we have customers in that domain and and we're helping accelerate, but it's still like a decade long problem than it is, you know, something that's going to be deployed, you know, next year.
0: Well, isn't that, isn't that just a, a function of cost or that the cost versus the revenue opportunity? So if you're Waymo, you buy a Chrysler Pacifica for $50,000. You put $200,000 worth of stuff on the roof to make it drive itself. No one's buying a quarter million dollar Chrysler Pacifica. Right. Like, I can't imagine who would buy that. There's probably like some hardcore Pacifica blog that's going to write this up now. I'm hoping <laughs> they find us. <laughs> right. Um but you use that as a taxi, your quarter-million-dollar minivan starts generating money, you've built a business that eventually returns profit as you scale down the cost of the roof rack. You're saying you're going to take on all of that cost and then sell a turnkey solution to automakers so they can ship a $55,000 SUV to an average family that can drive itself.
2: Absolutely. The whole point is to have a solution. that You take that $100,000 roof rack full of stuff or $200,000 roof rack and- effectively put into a package that's more on the order of $1,000 than it is $200,000. That's a huge part of the equation, no question, is the cost and the economics there. But it's also just as much building a solution that's tailored for production vehicles that actually can be put into a car in an auto-grade solution in capacity and having the software that's focused around the use case in the application, the domain. You're going to have a completely different level of software complexity trying to build for an urban environment than you are for the highway environments that we're focused on for the initial deployments with OEMs. And the whole point is, how do you do all of that on the sensing side? Okay, in the software side, you solve that problem. You also need to make sure that it doesn't require a supercomputer in your trunk to actually process. And uh, that's where it's like being able to get all of that work on a the same kind of NVIDIA GPU that people are embedding into their production vehicles—that that's key, and that that's effectively what we've had to solve for, you know, as part of the full stack solution. Now, is it going to be driving you everywhere from point A to point B anywhere you want? Absolutely not. But is it going to be enabling some level of autonomy that's reachable by consumers and dramatically improved safety on your vehicle that can be put out onto millions of production cars? Absolutely. So that then that's how you start generating a real business.
0: We're going to take a quick break. And when we come back, we're going to talk about some of the different technologies used to make self-driving cars work. And of course, Tesla.
2: Support for today's show comes from Deloitte. Here's the story of innovation told in five words. Try. Explore. Connect. Pivot. Transform. See what happened there? As soon as Connect entered the story... Innovation became achievable. That's why Deloitte works with clients and tech alliances to bring together the people, ideas, and technologies to overcome, solve, and, of course, transform. Connect to what matters for innovation. Start at Deloitte.com US innovate.
1: This episode is brought to you by State Farm. You've heard it before. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there.
0: We're back with Austin Russell. One of the things I always think about with what I would call like foundational technologies, sensors, display technologies, batteries, right, is we tend to build software and products around the limitations of those technologies. And then sometime along the way, there's a huge shift in foundational technologies and our entire belief about what the products can do changes and we have to build entirely new software. A really dumb example is the transition from CRTs to LCDs. Right? There was a a whole conception of what the world of technology would look like when CRTs were the display technology. We shifted to LCDs, and now literally everything is an Android computer. Do you worry that LiDAR is one of those foundational technologies that will get disrupted in that way, or is it the kind of end-all be-all of sensing the world around you?
2: It's a good question, and I think It's foundational technologies itself, but also the economics of those technologies, the performance of those technologies. What are the theoretical limitations in terms of, you know, what what you can actually achieve with each of these different systems? And I I would actually say that LIDAR is the perfect example literally what we're just talking about here of of a technology that's entirely disrupted the mindset and the business model around what was even possible from an autonomous perspective. For example... Historically, LIDAR has been very limited in terms of the range performance of what you can actually do, how far out you can see. That was part of the reason why people were focused on urban environments for their autonomous vehicle setups, for the robo taxis, you know, operating at low speed. Now when you can see very clearly out to 250 meters into the distance, different story. You can start to operate on highway speeds. You can now enable a different operating domain and something that's actually ends up being more simple if you have the range to be able to do it. At the same time, for example, the economics, if you have something that isn't that huge, you know, $100,000 roof rack full of stuff and you can actually have it embedded in a production vehicle for something more on the order of $1,000, it makes all the difference. And like, I mean, yeah, we're we're pricing our centers today at that, you know, at uh, at that mark for many of these applications. So that's where seeing this actually happen in a production vehicle, you know, it, it completely shifts the mindset in terms of what's possible. And I, I'm not even sure that all these companies would have the same business model that they do today if they knew this was this is possible from the beginning. I actually don't think that a lot of the robo companies would at all. But when it comes down to it, anything beyond that, just from, a, you know, if you're talking existential perspective about not just LiDAR disrupting LiDAR, but LiDAR, or you know, something disrupting it, not just improvements in the technology, but disrupting it altogether. The reality is, is that, the autonomous vehicle problem and being able to try and solve all these different edge cases is really, really hard. You know, people try not to say, oh, yeah, we'll solve it. It's easy, you know, figure it out like in twenty, twenty 3, whatever it is. Uh, no, this stuff is really hard. And no one has ever actually solved it at, at this point today uh, for, for the kind of application domain that, that you're looking at. Now, you really need to throw everything you can get out at it. There was definitely an idea a few years ago that it would be something that would be solvable by – time and data collection and just what it takes but the reality is it just requires a lot of raw intense performance of a system to be able to understand what's going on and 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 required even much better performance from a lidar standpoint to be able to enable the capabilities to have your understanding of everything going on around you very far out and with the level of resolution performance that's needed on top of that of course there's continuing software capabilities that need to improve you know it is improving it's getting better but the software is not going to be there for A while for more of these urban environments and constraints, you know, regardless of what anyone might say, if you want to try to have it cargo from point A to point B in these environments, it's going to take time, even with our sensors, it's going to take a lot of time. But the point is, is how do you get this out there sooner than later? That's where you will go for the more constrained environments. Now, listen, of course, you know, when talking about disrupting this, you you have the uh, you have sometimes confusion that can arise. There's a very bright line between something. There's assisted driving and there's autonomous driving one requires the driver constantly in the loop ready to take over the wheel at any given moment whenever it makes a mistake as it's following a couple lanes on uh, on the road ahead this is the equivalent of effectively like things like tesla autopilot or the systems that company mobile has been providing to oems for you know the better part of a decade now for other oems they don't always enable the same full functionality that tesla does you know more aggressively but versus true self-driving true autonomy Hands off, eyes off, read a book, use your phone, work on your laptop, watch a movie, take a nap, you know, that kind of thing. That's autonomy. And that's the key step function value. That's what this enables. That's the whole point of what this LiDAR enables. You don't need a LiDAR at all if you want your car to follow a couple lanes on the road ahead of you and uh, keep with your hands on the wheel and eyes on the road. This is what it enables. And um, it doesn't matter what you call your assisted driving system, you can call it autopilot full self driving you know whatever it is uh, or uh, or you know uh, like i said the other oems that conservatively name their systems more appropriately uh, so that's the key distinction there the more performance you get the safer the vehicle is and i don't think anybody's going to stop and say yeah you know i think we can just decrease the safety of these vehicles by 100x like even if you got there like even if you got to a point where you could achieve that human level safety threshold Why would you make your vehicles that much less safe? It doesn't make any sense. So that would be the even not just in the near term, but I'm talking like even like a 50 year type time horizon. Uh, You don't really see it being disrupted. You see how do you continue to strive for even better performance?
0: Right. You're saying if we made a fully autonomous car now that drove as well as me, a, a human, that's not worth it. Because I'm not a, like on average human uh, driver.
2: Yeah, So you're saying with lidar or without? You're saying with, with without lidar in that example? Just in general?
0: Just in general, like is a is a is a goal as a marker. We made a car. It doesn't have a steering wheel. It can drive as well as the average person. Probably not worth it.
2: No, no, one hundred percent. Now, I, I mean, you have to start somewhere with it, right? You know, but but the point is, is that people aren't going to stop there. You know, it's not going to be good enough. Good enough, at least in our view, is Driving the 1.3 million lives lost every year. You know. By the way, just putting that in perspective, that's that's like in the same vicinity of the of the crazy pandemic that we've had over over the past year in terms of life loss, and it happens every single year and is completely doesn't doesn't discriminate against underlying conditions or, or whatever. It's it's insane. You know how accepted this is just in in everyday life, and that's where if we can have the opportunity to be able to solve for that and drive that towards zero, that's the mission that we should be going towards, right? You know, we, we all need to be rallying around as opposed to just the human level, the safety threshold. Now, that's not to say that, like I said, you know, you're going to be 10x better, or 100x better off the bat, but you know, you got to keep pushing for that.
0: So I cleverly opened the door to the Tesla conversation <laughs> Yeah, walked immediately through it. So the reason I asked about foundational technologies, and I think the reason you brought up full self-driving or autopilot or whatever Tesla's going to call it, is uh, Elon Musk, who I think his office is just out your yeah, back you windows over there. see it right um, over
2: yeah. <laughs> Right across the way.
0: <laughs> he has famously said LiDAR is a local maximum. It's the wrong approach. It's going to hit some ceiling of performance, and that'll be that. And the right answer for, for vision in uh, automobiles is having a bunch of cameras and doing it in software at a high rate. Next to that is the other thing you brought up, which is Google and Waymo saying we're going to use a bunch of technologies. We'll have an enormous amount of data that we'll measure by miles driven and we'll collect all that data and we'll run it through machine learning. And, and that is the correct approach. And they're very proud of that approach. But let's start with with Tesla and Musk and the local maximum comment. Is his approach to just using a bunch of cameras, does that actually have a higher ceiling or do you think that you can catch up to it?
2: So just a couple things just to kind of level set with that. So you gave, like, for example, the Waymo example here. In terms of it's all about, and the Tesla example, it's all about what problem are you trying to solve? Like what application are you trying to enable? What feature set are you trying to enable? For example, for what Waymo is trying to enable, being able to build, you know, these, these robo taxis for urban use cases, you know, and solving for that they're absolutely doing the right thing. Like they're doing everything step-by-step step that you should do and executing on it. You know, probably some in the industry would argue better than anyone else. So I'd agree with, or maybe at a, at a quicker pace, you know, obviously you have to be conscious around what is the application and also what are the different subcomponents that, that are there that it's still a long road ahead. There's other things like higher performance LiDAR that help accelerate you there much more quickly and something that you ultimately need to to enable with. But Nevertheless, I think that's the point. But like for urban robo-taxi, you know, development program, when you take a look at something like Tesla, it's again, how does what you build align with the product you're trying to develop? And, and, and it's the same thing about assisted driving systems versus autonomous driving systems. If you want to build a great assisted driving system, you should be doing exactly what they're doing. Everything spot on, collect lots of data, build the model, build everything. Now, arguably, I mean, listen, their system was originally powered by Mobileye some time ago uh so with pretty much all the other major automakers they kind of broke out from that it was initially kind of worse now it kind of caught up to what mobilize had but this is nothing like fundamentally novel in the in the context of having an assisted driving system that 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 does these things um the real challenge is when you try and cross a threshold into calling things autonomous but the reality is is that the threshold for an assisted driving system versus an autonomous system it's Orders of magnitude different. It's like not even kind of close. It, it really is like, you know, a factor of, I mean, if you want to improve to a point of where it's safer than a human level, where you would never need to take over, you need to take that disengagement rate from once every 20 miles to once every 2 million miles, you know, plus. And disengagement, meaning you have to take over the wheel to prevent otherwise some kind of incident or accident, you know, like in the current assisted driving system. So the whole point of where LIDAR comes into play is to is to solve that problem. You know, obviously anyone that tries to or even just a single person that tries to promise that without without uh, without it. I, I mean, the hard part is you back yourself into a corner if you've been saying the same thing for five years and it will come out like you're supposed to, it's supposed to come out every year the next year. But uh, I, I I don't, I don't want to make sure you have any respect loss for the uh, incredible things that new players in the EV world and um, even folks like Tesla have built and disrupted, you know, on the EV side. You know, it's it's absolutely fantastic. But at the same time. When it comes to autonomy, we just need to make sure we get the terminology straight and what's actually possible. Because that, that's ultimately beneficial to consumers. The last thing you want is people misusing the technology and thinking it's capable of certain things when it's not. It's just—it's a really hard problem. It's a long way to go, even with the best performing lidar. It's still a long way to go. Much less trying to make it a hundred times harder without it. So,
0: you think it's—you think it's a hundred times harder without lidar?
2: Uh, that's probably an underestimate. Yeah. Now. Let's clarify here. If you have a really low performance LIDAR that only gives you like a handful of points out there in the environment, maybe it's only incrementally more helpful. The whole point of the LIDAR is that it gives you a 3D map of everything around the world in real time. You know exactly where every object is. The hard part with cameras alone is that they give you a 2D view of what's going on. You never really know where the objects are. You effectively have to guess and people have made software that gets better and better and better at guessing. And this is like, you know, effectively what, what Mobileye and what Tesla and, and, and um, you know, these, these companies have been doing. It gets to a point of where you kind of approach like 99% accuracy. Here's the problem. Even 99% is still not even remotely close to being good enough. You need like 10 nines worth of reliability in there. And it gets exponentially harder with each nine. It's like, is it acceptable to run over one out of every 100 people? because you didn't see them. And, uh, and guess where it is right? You know, any rational person would say no. And, and that would not make it anything close to the same safety threshold as a human. So that's the that's the whole point around it. And the LiDAR, assuming you have really high performance, long range, high resolution, that you have to have that uh, to get the clear understanding of everything going on. But if you know exactly where everything is, like we do down to centimeter level of precision, it makes all the difference and there's no question it's like it's you know yes it's, a, it's 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 another sensor on, on board the vehicles but there's there's a good reason why every actually, effectively every autonomous vehicle company has been, been going down this and um to your question on data there's no question that more data and better data absolutely helps but the whole point is when you have a more limited quality of data set like for example with cameras it absolutely tapers off in terms of the utility of it you know like OEMs, the mobilize of this world, you know, only use a really small fraction of of that overall data that's that's collected. You know, it, it has kind of a, a marginal utility curve that only only helps you so much. But let's say even if you were able to continue an amazing growth rate, like 50% improvement year over year, you know, for these kinds of systems, when you're trying to solve a gap of like 10,000 X in safety, it'd be like a century or two by the time you got there. So <laughs> Uh, so that that's the distinction, and that's where I think there can be often a gap between the understanding of where this kind of – and I'd just say more broadly, like autonomous-related technology is today and where it actually needs to get to and how we successfully close that gap because there is a huge gap.
0: Let's put into context what you mean by LiDAR performance. So right now, I think the easiest way for an average person to get a LiDAR sensor in their life is to go out and buy an iPhone. It's true. The pro models of the iPhone have a lidar sensor on the back. They're very small, so,
2: so awesome. By the way,
0: they help with some picture stuff, and there's a bunch of AR gimmicks. But that's how you can get a lidar sensor in your life. Yep. Just put the performance of the iPhone lidar sensor on a on a spectrum with what you're hoping to achieve or what you're building.
2: You're talking, okay? So, so for example, an iPhone lidar sensor. You know, you're, you're talking about seeing single-digit meters out into the distance you know now of course in this case it actually depends on whether it's daylight outside whether it's night you know and did you have that that we have to see regardless of the condition 250 meters out of the distance even if the sun is like shining into the sensor so you know you're, you're talking like up to like a hundred times the range here of what you'd see on an iphone lidar, uh, with orders of magnitude more resolution performance as well and um, something that's in an auto-grade, mass-producible device. So you know. The, the, by the way, it's a square function. So the farther you go out, if you're a hundred times the distance, it actually requires exponentially more output power from a from a radiometry perspective. Of uh, you actually have to you have to square that. So you know you're talking like more on the order of ten thousand times the amount of. Um, performance that you have to have out of out of a lidar system just to be able to get that distance so that gives you a spectrum of comparison of why this is actually really really hard uh to do that and by the way you have to do all of this i mean you, you have to do that and see not just the bright white reflective objects but you have to see the really dark objects too because like what happens if there's a tire on the road you know a black car or a person in dark clothing anything those are actually really hard to see to get light reflected off of which makes it another hundred times harder you know uh, up to than a bright white reflective object so the whole point is there's no off-the-shelf parts or components that you can buy for a lidar that enable you to do this today it does, doesn't exist I mean this is the whole point of why we had to actually build it entirely from the ground up we had to make all of our own components we had to solve for all of that in order to actually make this work you have to do that again at the same time while having it be economical enough that it's not a tens or hundreds of thousands of dollars to actually build and, and to be able to put it put it into a production vehicle so that was what we had to solve for. We were fortunate enough that we were able to over that five year period of really deep intense work and meeting all those different very stringent requirements. And um yeah, having that having that be commercialized into production vehicles, I mean that that's kind of a whole the whole thing of what's next. I mean, is is that once you meet all those specs and once you get the commercial step right, it's all about getting into serious production. And um yeah, I mean we were fortunate enough to be the 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 first and. Only company to really be able to enable autonomy in series production from these different programs out there. You know, starting with Volvo and then, you know, uh, cascading some of the other OEMs that we're we're working with as well. So it'll be a a good start. But that gives you kind of an idea around the performance of what it takes to make it commercially viable as well.
0: We're going to take another quick break. And when we come back, I'm going to ask the question I ask every self-driving CEO. When? When will I be able to get a car that drives itself? All right, we're back. I ask every self-driving car CEO this. You don't make cars, but I feel like you have a a good handle on it. How long until I can buy a car without a steering wheel?
2: Ooh, um, probably, yeah, yeah. I, I would say early 2030s, realistically, a couple different observations here. There's a key distinction to that question of when can you buy a car without a steering wheel. It's not. It's not clear that people will actually be selling these cars without steering wheels. If you get to a point where you don't have to have a steering wheel, then it likely will be deployed in a more robo taxi type app application initially, as it scales up, and then ultimately be offered to consumers as well. But here's the thing. Interestingly enough, from a regulatory perspective, it actually gets a lot more complicated when you know when you start ripping out steering wheels. You know, changing all the different functionalities of the core of the vehicles to be able to establish what you could see for a futuristic version of autonomy, you know, on, on these cars versus just enabling autonomous capabilities on existing production vehicles. That's going to take some time. I would say like in theory, you could probably buy a car without a, a steering wheel that would take you from point A to point B in a more limited geographic capacity between 2025 and 2030. But the question is, would you really want that? Like, when you buy a car that can only take you to certain limited destinations, like in, in a city? It's like...
0: Maybe. Maybe. I feel like there's a lot of people who would move farther away from New York or San Francisco if they had a car that could reliably and quickly move them back and forth from work.
2: Absolutely. But here's the thing. That's the whole point of exactly what we're doing for 2022. Not even 2030, 2022 on these different production vehicle platforms is enabling highway autonomy. The whole point is, you, you know, you take your car, like, yeah, let's say you're, you're living out farther into, into, the, into the suburbs there and commuting into the city. Take your car, manually drive over the freeway. Once you're on it, engage in autonomous mode, hands off, eyes off, be able to recover that time. Or, like I said, everything from using your phone to taking a nap. And then a few minutes before the final exit, have a planned manual takeover and then drive to the final destination and that's kind of that hybrid of a problem and a solution there whereas if you eliminate the steering wheel altogether it's only going to be able to work on whatever routes that you know it's it's effectively pre-programmed to be able to work on and that that's going to be a uh, a much tougher distinction there as as it relates to that so uh you know this is just going to be a normal car otherwise that you can also use any any day anytime that also has dramatically improved safety because it will now actively take over in instances where it's predicting an accident could occur as well, which is something that really hasn't been seen before on vehicles. And another really interesting aspect of how you can start saving all these lives without having autonomy. You don't have to have autonomy everywhere to start doing that.
0: You've got a handful of big partners, Audi, Volvo. Which of those companies should we see Luminar technology in first in a shipping product?
2: You know, Volvo is certainly there first with, the, with these programs. We're, we're driving towards um, start of production. You know, with the programs, uh, like actually, it's you know, starting around the corner next year in twenty twenty two by the um, by the end of that, to be able to deliver this autonomous solution that can be enabled, or these really, I should say, these wider enabled vehicles here, the things that you can actually buy. That's a, that is a key distinction when it when it comes down to it. So, it's something that is definitely going to be the first to market in terms of any kind of a level of autonomous capabilities that's um, functional and tangible as well, for that matter, by consumers or otherwise. So it'll be exciting to help enable that to happen. You know, we, we have another uh, a host of other great partners. And, you know, even, even most recently, just in the second half of um, this last year, over the past handful of months, you know, announced, uh, you know, Daimler Trucks as a lead partner on the truck side, just as Volvo as a lead partner on the car side. And then also Mobileye as kind of a lead ecosystem partner including their foray into robo-taxis as well, which I think is going to be super promising. So that's where um, we're delivering against. And uh, But Volvo really helped set the clock for for everybody and, frankly, a lot of the rest of the industry timing-wise from our product perspective and how we scale that into the rest of the other OEMs. You know, But uh, I think they've had a really strong safety brand and focus around this and just see this as too critical to be able to mess around with and, and be able to have the best technology and the best program and you know, make it economical for, for their vehicles. So it's gonna to continue to get better and better over time via over-the-air software updates, but uh, it, it's, it's certainly gonna be a great start to the whole new era of autonomy in the industry.
0: So we've had this long conversation about how you started the company very early, very young. You were in stealth for a long time. You came out of stealth. You announced you have a product. Now you're a public company CEO. It, Remarkably young age. That's the that, for a lot of people. That's the whole startup journey, right? Like you, you did the whole thing. Right? Is that done for you? Do you see another stage of this journey that isn't like most startup founders when they get here, they start to get antsy. <laughs> I'm, I'm wondering. I'm wondering if you if you're feeling that or not.
2: It's a good and and fair and reasonable question. You know, I think to ask for any founder along the way, and I I think there's there's some folks that end up that scale better than others, you know, uh, at different parts of the journey. You know, you have different types of personalities along the way. A lot of times, you know, early on, founder or founder CEOs will go and take a um, more technologically or R&D focused role along the way, you know, or or not really handle the business side of the equation with this. At least for me personally, the way that I've always seen it is that you have to have a system level technological solution as well as a really strong business case and business mentality if you want to be able to see this built and successfully scale you see a lot of the great entrepreneurs of our era and the um you know the the zuckerbergs of this world or even the the, the basis is up to up to this point you know able to scale incredibly well and i think that's where you know i ha- have a similar mentality and, and and drive and desire to be able to build ultimately to that to that level and scale of, of this kind of company and and i mean certainly if there's any industry that's right, for disruption that have the ability to enable this, you know, as a trillion-dollar space that's evolving, it's, you know, it is autonomy, and that's what we're absolutely going to be continuing to drive towards. So it's, it's a good question. The most important thing is you bring in the key and relevant top-notch A-plus team members on board to be able to successfully execute. You know, you can have the best vision on the planet that's just the best strategy the best product, the best commercial landscape, but you need to execute still. You know, we still have a lot of stuff to execute on. That's where, you know, we make sure to get just rockstar team members sure. from across the board to be able to, to, to do exactly that. You know, whereas a lot of entrepreneurs, you know, maybe you see IPO as like the end of the journey. You're talking about phase one, phase two, all this. All this was our phase one. Now we're on to phase two. So this really is the beginning of a long journey being on the younger side I'm in I'm in a fortunate enough to position you know when talking about you know di- different different public companies out there you know a lot of times you know you have CEOs that only plan to have a tenure of you know on the order of like five years or, or whatever it may be I think in a in a fortunate enough position I don't know pro- probably the youngest public company CEO but be be able to have a time horizon and a vision more in the order of 50 years then 5 years you know as we see this through i don't i don't plan on uh frankly doing anything different now you know the scope of what luminar will do will expand absolutely over time but that's we have the time and you just take it step by step and absolutely committed 100% to see it all the way through until every car has these kinds of autonomous capabilities and you know accelerated by way of being powered by luminar
0: I very much look forward to the interview we do when you're 75 and I'm 90 <laughs> and I play clips. I play clips from this interview back at you. That's going to be a good time. Well, Austin, it's been terrific to have you on Decoder. I look forward to talking to you much more as time goes on. I personally cannot wait to have a car that will drive into New York City, so
2: hurry up. Fantastic. Yeah, that'll be awesome. All right. Well. Well, thanks so much for having me.
0: Thanks again to Austin Russell for taking the time to talk today, and thank you for listening. I hope you enjoyed it. As always, we'd love to hear what you think of the show. You can email us at decoder at theverge.com or hit me up directly. I'm at Reckless on Twitter. If you like the show, please share it with your friends and subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. And don't forget to fill out our survey at theverge.com slash survey. Decoder is a production of The Verge and part of the Vox Media Podcast Network. Today's episode was produced by Sophie Erickson, Creighton De Simone, and Andrew Marino. It was edited and mixed by Callie Wright. Our music is by Breakmaster Cylinder. We'll see you next time.